Self-criticism is important to recognize that destroying nature is the wrong thing to do. And responsibility, it's important to take action and make sure that if we broke it, we fix it. If we destroy it, we rebuild it. And that if all that happened because we got disconnected from nature, then we help people to reconnect. Welcome to the Wild Foundation Podcast, Voices of Wilderness. Through the stories our guests share, you'll learn about how we can and must protect wilderness for a healthy future. We hope to leave you a little more inspired to speak out, take action, make a difference, and find solutions to the biodiversity and climate crises. Welcome to Wild's podcast. We're embarking on an exciting journey through the wonders of wilderness, alongside some of the most passionate conservationists dedicated to its worldwide protection. In today's episode, meet Chris Tompkins, co-founder and president of Tompkins Conservation, and Dr. Emiliano Donadio, a conservation biologist from Rewilding Argentina. Today, they're going to discuss their incredible efforts to establish a jaguar corridor in Argentina. As Emiliano points out, in Argentina, the jaguar is critically endangered. This is why, since 2007, they have tirelessly worked on restoring the species, initiating the world's very first jaguar breeding program for reintroduction in the Ibera wetlands. With over 17 jaguars now freely roaming in the wetlands and other ongoing projects, their work extends to reviving the jaguar population in the threatened Chaco Forest in northeastern Argentina. So what is the importance of top predators in ecosystems? And why is there a critical need to restore connectivity between habitats to ensure the long-term survival of such species. All right, let's dive into the daily lives of Chris and Emiliano as they navigate the captivating landscapes of Argentina and the incredible species that live there. Hello, hello, Emiliano and Chris. Thank you both so much for joining us today on the podcast. I really speak for everyone at Wild when I say that we're very excited for this conversation and to hear about the work that the two of you are doing and that the organization is doing as a whole. So please introduce yourselves to the Wild audience. My name is Chris Tompkins, and I'm the, one of the co-founders and president of Tompkins Conservation, and I've been working along with my husband, Douglas Tompkins, who died seven years ago with teams, a team in Argentina and a team in Chile to create large land-scale national parks and also where keystone species are missing to bring them back. My name is uh, Emiliano Abanadio. I'm from Argentina. I'm a biologist 
and right now I'm the science director of Rewilding Argentina, one of the two, I would say, daughter organizations that Tompkins Conservation had to to develop in South America. I know we're going to get into some great topics. We like to start by asking all of our guests, what does wilderness mean to you? What does it look like, feel like, smell, sound? What feelings does it invoke? One of my teammates a uh, time ago was asked the same question, and she put it in one word. She responded, home. Nature is home. Wilderness is home. And I kind of love that definition, so I embrace it. <laughs> and home, you know, is, at least for me, is a peaceful place. And that feels like uh, it feels the breeze in the morning when it just hits in your face. My memory is that it smells like flower. For some reason, I think it smells, wilderness smells like flowers. And it sounds like the rain. I don't know why, but it, it's it's that that's what I what I feel, and it sounds it sounds the air when it goes through the feathers of an Andean condor that is flying low, and I have that memory like ingrained in my brain. I I don't know if you have heard a condor flying low, but it's just the sound of the air going through its feathers is just amazing. So for me, that's the sound of nature. I don't think I've been lucky enough to hear that sound, but hearing the enthusiasm in your voice describing it, I hope so badly that one day I get to hear that sound because I can imagine it, but I can only, I can only dream of what it would be like in person. It's pretty easy. Just go to a place where there are condors and play dead. Oh, oh, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> that's a great advice. I'll do that. I'll get back to you on how that goes. And Chris, what about you? I look at the definition of wild, kind of like the old um, conservation biologist, that territories and species that are self-willed still self-willed landscapes, species. And for me, I mean, certainly Emiliano's description is clear in my mind. I, I would say that my recognition of being in a truly wild place is the tinier I feel, the wilder it is. You're forced to, invited to think about how small you are in the scale of things and how this ancient feeling inside myself begins to feel at home. So that's, that's kind of my litmus test for, for what really wild circumstances. I love that. And the two of you have this idea of, of home, you know, returning home. And I think that's very true. That really resonates with me and what my definition of wilderness or where I feel that would be. So let's dive into the meat of this, the Jaguar reintroduction work that all of you are doing. Can you fill in our audience about bringing back the Jaguars to areas where they have been eradicated in Argentina? We bought our first property in Iberau Wetlands, the northeastern section of Argentina, in 1997. 
And of course, that first year, we had no idea what was there, what should be there, but's missing. We barely knew where we were. It was kind of a spur of the moment idea to buy 150,000 acres in this 2 million acre wetlands. And it's also important for the history to understand that we had been working largely in Chile or down in really southern Argentina where many species, the numbers of them were low and fragile, but nobody was completely missing. So upon arrival at Iberá and as we began to understand the nature of that ecosystem, we began to realize that Almost everyone was missing <laughs> in terms of top predators, keystone species. So even but long before Doug died, he, we talked about the possibility of, of seeing jaguars roam again. And that was really the matchstick that started it all, at least for us. Not, I'm not speaking for Emiliano. And... We got started, we thought, well, let's start on something we think would be easy, which were the giant anteaters, because they have tiny mountains. We didn't know anything about this stuff. And that's how we got started, and each species is very particular. It has its own. None of them are the same, but there is a kind of basic learning of rewilding as we went forward with new species that needed attention, and then, of course, the jaguar, which we took on 11 years ago. So, First of all, the long-term architects were, of course, Chris, but also our colleagues, Sofia Hinonen, Sebastián Di Martino, and Eva Yonoshis, who's not working with us anymore, Ignacio Jiménez. When I took over this position, most of the staff was already done. So just to give your audience an idea of what is going on with the jaguar and why, why it's important to reintroduce this animal in, in different places of, of the Americas. Across the Americas, from southern U.S. all the way down to Argentina, the geographic range of the jaguars has been reduced by 50%. So that's a lot of territory that has lost its top predator. And in Argentina, the trend has been even worse. In Argentina, the geographic range of the jaguar has been reduced by 95%. So today, jaguars exist in Argentina only in a few pockets of habitat in the northern part of the, the country. We don't know how many jaguars are left in Argentina, but some educated guesses suggest that there are less than 300 animals. In Argentina, the jaguar is critically in danger. Therefore, it's key not only to protect the existing populations, which are very few, maybe two or three, but to create new ones where they used to be. And that's what Rewild in Argentina is doing in the northeast, northeastern region of the, of the country. We work there in two different locations, and in each location we are using slightly different approaches. So in one, in one place, which is the Ibera wetland, the wetland that, that Chris was talking about at the, at the beginning, that's a 1.9 million acres park. There, jaguars were completely eradicated. So in Ibera, we are reintroducing them from scratch, from zero. The planning of the project began probably 11, 12 years ago. And 
the first animals were released in 2021. <laughs> January 6th, to be exact. It's in my brain. So it took, it took a long, long time to start releasing animals. And the first animals that were released, there were released four animals in 2021. Well, actually eight, but it was one male and three females. And two of those females were released each with two cups. So that's the founding population. Today, we have 17 or 18 jaguars roaming free in the Ibera Park. So that's a, that's a big success. That's a, a, from the population perspective, that's a big success. And then we have another project also in northeastern Argentina, and this project is located in the Impenetrable National Park. This, this park protects sort of dry forest that is being logged at unprecedented rates. So that, that park represents a stronghold for, for that kind of landscape. And here the approach is a little bit different because there are a few males wandering around in the park, just like in the southern part of the southern west, southwestern part of, of the U.S., Right, just a few adult males, young adult males, roaming there. So the species is not completely extinct there, but almost. So there we are. We are not reintroducing them because they are still there, but we are reinforcing the population, and we are doing that with a very original, unique approach that might be useful for the reintroduction pro project in the U.S. We can talk about that later. But the approach is, I, I love the approach, <laughs> because what our team in the field came up was with this idea of bringing captive females. So let's bring captive females, let's put them in this one hectare or so, two acres corrals, and let's provide the mechanisms so that the wild males can enter these pens, mate with the females, and live. Amazingly, that worked. And we had one male, there are two or three males left in that park. And we had one male entering that, those pens in three opportunities. And in, that, in those three opportunities, the mating was successful and the females gave birth two or three cups each time. So we are basically saving the genes of this male who otherwise would have been killed somewhere else. We are producing cubs that, when they are two years old, will be released into the park. And we are anchoring those males to the park so they are around that area and they don't keep walking looking for females. In, that, in doing so, they get into ranches where they might be, they might be shot. So two, two different approaches, but... Both are, are working pretty, pretty nicely. Now, by the way, the Iberá is starting to have enough animals to become a source that we provide jaguars with other genotypes to the Impenetrable National Park. So the Iberá is not only a success when it comes to reintroducing and basically recreating a population of jaguars, but now it's going to help other parks to get healthy jaguar populations. So um, that's the story right now. That's where we are 
right now uh, when it comes to the shower reintroduction program in Argentina. Wow. First of all, congratulations on the success that you've seen so far with this reintroduction program. It's, I mean, I want to say miraculous, but the amount of work that has gone into it is clearly a lot. So, you know, the hard work, the dedication is very much paying off. And I know that our planet will say thank you someday for that. So, and I'm saying thank you because it's it's wonderful to hear and it's wonderful to learn about. And, you know, obviously these big cats are key to these ecosystems, but what is it about these animals that really keeps you dedicated to the work and keeps you excited about it? Because I can hear the passion and the excitement in your voice. So what is it about this animal that has really just captivated the two of you? Well, I think as Sebastian DiMartino Di always says, our goals are to create fully functioning ecosystems. So for Doug and me, when we first got started, as I said earlier, we were working in territories in Chile where it was clear that some species were in trouble, but nobody was actually missing. I think once we got to Ibarra, we really came to understand that we weren't just in the land conservation business. We are we really want to be leaving behind fully functioning ecosystems. And if that's the goal, rather than just creating national parks or some other things, then by the nature of that description, you have no choice but to, to commit yourself to bringing back those species that are really necessary to see the ecosystem functioning and in its historic and appropriate way. Yeah. So, so what captivated me about the species? I'm I'm a, I'm an ecologist. I'm, I I was I've been formed as an ecologist, right? And so I love interactions. I, I really like how species interact in the in the landscape and how that cas- cascades down or up to different species. So because that is what it shows me the network of connections that an ecosystem has. And because I like interactions, I really like top predators because they have all these effects over ecosystems. It's where it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's not that I have, I'm not captivated by the jaguar specifically. I really like all these animals that have all these effects. But I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I have never seen a wild jaguar in my life until we captured the first one in an impenetrable national park in 2021. I've never seen something like that. I mean, the combination of power and elegance of that animal just blew my mind. So I think that that's something that, not professionally, <laughs> but personally, about, about the shower. Yeah, no, that I mean, I, I've never seen one in the wild. I can only imagine what that experience is like. And like you said, it, it's well, like both of you alluded to or directly mentioned. Really, it's they're part of the solution. That is this whole web of reconstructing a healthy ecosystem. Is not just protecting the land. It's reintroducing the species that depend on one another to really have a healthy, functioning, and thriving space for these animals. So. 
you know, I, you've shared already these wonderful anecdotes that are, are just so lovely to hear. But, and of course, with the success that you've seen, there is this innate feeling of hope for the future of these species, but not just these species, but these entire landscapes and the species that depend on the jaguars. Is there, aside from these victories that you've seen in the last, you know, since 2021, why else do you have hope for these, for these places and these, these species? Well, I'm very cautious about using the term hope. That's very fair. <laughs> That's very fair. I think hope, at least in the short term, certainly this century, sometimes I think my own work is to, to get as much done in this century as possible because this will be the tough one, I think. But I see where there are not top predators, fully functioning ecosystems, then I don't, I don't see a lot of hope in the midterm. And I think, yeah, hope always trips me up because I don't have a lot of faith in the way things are going. But when you, I, I will say one thing that I find extremely positive, and I don't think any of us understood how resilient species are that have been missing for so long and given the opportunity to be put placed back into territories where they've existed formally, it is really heartening that they do well, uh, not always, but generally speaking, and that these, these, this kind of work is possible. That does give me hope because, or heart, I should say. But it's a lot of responsibility because once you start these projects, you can't give them up. You know, whatever your holds, and we clearly take a long time yeah, to sure. materialize. Yeah. Now, it, it might take time, and that's, that's true, but that, that's because it was the first of its kind. I mean, the one in El Impenetrable National Park, it went faster than the first one. I mean, Trovali in Argentina is doing a lot of things for conservation, but one of the things that he's doing is spearing all these projects and learning in the process of how to make them happen faster than it was before. So I, I, I think that there will be many projects like ours in Latin America sooner than later. They will be able to learn from our experience to make things happen faster and more efficiently. As Chris said, I, I, don't, I don't use the word hope very much, but let's think where we were 10 years ago. I mean, nobody would have ever thought that Jaguars would return to Iberá and would be in such a successful way. And three years ago, four years ago, when our team in the field, Sebastián and Sofía, came up with the idea of bringing captive females to an impenetrable national park, the resistance was huge huge. Now, nobody says a word about that. Now, by the way, we have something to teach or something to uh, provide to other people who might want to do uh, something alike in other locations. So um, I'm going to tell you what I expect, not what I hope. <laughs> but what, the, what I expect is to have several populations in Argentina thriving, more than two, more than three. In, within the next 10 years, and I expect having one or three 
well, sorry, two or three more projects in different parts of the Americas reintroducing Jaguars. Maybe one is going to be in the in the US. So that's what I expect. That's why we, that's, we work for that, Chris. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, one of my personal dreams, one, I'm in the United States right now. I'm about to leave for Iberá in a couple of days, but one of my dreams is to see breeding populations of Jaguars in North America. And just so I came up here when COVID got started, and I kind of asked around and, you know, just quietly, and it seemed impossible to me. But now, just two and a half years later, whatever it is, difficult perhaps, but not impossible. And this is what these projects that are, you think they're so audacious at first, and then you see audaciousness fall to possible. And then this has a reverberating effect all around the world. I mean, and it goes both ways. It's not like everybody's looking at TC or rewilding Argentina and Chile, but it, it has a tremendous echo effect and specifically with the Jaguar projects because they seem the most impossible or just, I think every time you see a new species go free, you have to project that out to what the impact of that is for people working in the field around the world. I mean, it is phenomenal. And we've only really been rewilding systematically for 15 years, 17 years. So that's not a very long time when you add it up. And I think the team has a the really extraordinary thing about rewilding Argentina is that there's no sense of the impossible. You don't get hung up by it being difficult. And this, I think, uh, Doug and I have that had that same feeling, I think, in Chile as well. We, we have this kind of cultural sense of don't worry if it's difficult. Of course it's going to be difficult. Look at the upside. And, and that really, Sofia Hanana, and I would just like to call her out. She started working with us in 2000, I think, took on uh, the Argentine work at 2000. And I personally have never known any other strategic mind like hers for a lot of different things, besides creating the parks and everything else, all the political work, the local, regional, national work, and so on. And, and all these guys had to make a lot of this system up. People think of the work as being cats on the ground, but so much of the work is linking Argentina with the government of Brazil. Can you get individuals from Brazil? Can you move giant anteaters just from one province to another province in Argentina? I have to remember that none of this was really... In existence. And so, besides the really on the groundwork, they're creating highways where these projects can take place because they have to eventually be multinational and certainly multi provincial. Well, and it seems, I mean, you're changing mindsets from the fact that this animal wasn't, I mean, that these landscapes were not as healthy as they once were, of course, but that these large predators were not not inhabiting these areas. And the resistance that Emiliano was talking about 
you know, it's not easy to change mindsets, to change a cultural, I mean, it's kind of like changing a cultural shift and doing that is not simple and it is certainly not an overnight process. That is for sure. But, you know, I do want to, I really want to dive into how the restoration of this species benefits local communities because at Wild, something that we always focus on and and certainly with Wild 12 coming up and our emphasis on um, Indigenous people and local communities and their impact in environmental work, how is that brought into this project and how is that made a focus of it as well? There are basically three main aspects that are considered and that will impact local communities hopefully in a beneficial, well, I use hopeful, but hopefully in a beneficial way. But um, the, the first one is an, an ecological aspect, right? The, the, an ecosystem without predators is, is not an ecosystem that is working fine. So when, when, when do these predators or other species too, like large herbivores or, or species that, that can disperse seeds like macaws, or, or other birds, uh, when they, they when they are back, then you have an, an ecosystem that is working better. An, an ecosystem that is working better provides better services. So that's probably the first the first benefit for a, a local a local community. The the second one is cultural. Many of these local communities have a have a history with this species, and that's something that. For some reason, conservationists in Argentina miss. They have a, uh, a history with this species. They share the landscape for several hundred years. So they have a tradition of living with them and they have a culture that has been forged partially because of this wild species. And this is particularly true in, in Corrientes province, in the Iberá, where, where the Iberá Park is and where jaguars are coming back. So basically what is what we are seeing is that people is recovering all these traditions that can be translated into names, names of different places that have the, the word jaguar built into their, their names and they are recovering that. And, and and you can see the then the pride that these people feel about jaguars being or re, be returning to the, the, the Ibera. They are happy about that too. So it has a cultural impact too. And finally, the economic impact. I mean, rewilding brings all these species back. And to bring all the species back, you need room. <laughs> you need space. That uh, space is usually taken from other sort of production, right? When you buy land to, to create a, a national park or a provincial reserve or whatever, you once you, you have the land, you have to remove livestock or you have to remove whatever, pine plantations or whatever economic activity was going on there. So you need to provide an, an alternative for that. And rewilding can provide that. Observing wildlife or wildlife watching is a huge business all around the world. And why not in Argentina? So it's time to also change that mindset <laughs> and show that Rewilding is not uh, is not only conservation for conservation. It can bring all these economic benefits to local communities. So we work on that too. We prepare people 
to take advantage of all these species that are coming back and all these ecosystems that will be restored. So there are ecological benefits, there are cultural benefits, and there are economic benefits for the people. Of course, we do not ignore that bringing some species, like large predators, might also cause some conflicts with neighboring ranches, especially those that are dedicated to raise cattle. But we are, yeah, we take that into account and we are working with our neighbors to figure out, figure out ways where the potential impact of these large predators on their livestock can be reduced. Or maybe, maybe as, is, as it is happening in Brazil and Chile with jaguars in, in Brazil and cougars in Chile, maybe they can just change their economic activity to some sort of conservancy where they can host tourists and tourists can enjoy the wildlife that is moving from the protected areas into the, the ranches. I really appreciate the point of, you know, if you're going to remove the whatever industry was there that people are relying on for their livelihoods, you have to provide a viable alternative. And what I personally love about, you know, conservation work, especially with ecotourism and things, it's hopefully a, a very sustainable long-term alternative because if you can get these these landscapes functioning really properly and, and in a very healthy manner, people want to see these animals. You, you don't want to see them in just, in just a zoo. You know, you want to see them in their habitat. And people would, I'm speaking for myself here too, I'm outing myself. I've paid a lot of money to see animals in their natural habitat because it's an experience unlike anything other. So, sorry, I'm, I interjected there, but Please go ahead and Emiliano, keep going. No, 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 that's a great point. I mean, there are a lot of people willing to pay for it. But it's important to communicate as, is that we, of course, understand that ecotourism is not the final solution. It's one, but it's an important one because it respects ecosystems and, and it, it respects wildlife and it tries to restore what, is being, what, it, what it has been um, destroyed. So that's, that's the strength of this uh, approach. But we understand that might bring other sort of problems, but they can be worked out. That's the point. They can be worked out. You cannot neglect this strategy just because it, it will generate some problem. Whatever. I mean, mining. What? <laughs> no, nobody complains that much about mining and oil. <laughs> we understand there are challenges ahead, and we are either equipped, already equipped, or getting ready to, to face those challenges. But we need to restore nature. There is no doubt about that. No doubt. I mean, the United Nations is requesting massive restoration efforts across the world. So there is no doubt about restoring ecosystems, bringing species back. Well, I just would add, and, and I think maybe Emiliano touched on this, but one of the important things I think everywhere we worked is a lot of the key key team members are from local communities and we always call them consulting the geniuses of the place. You know, a lot of park guards, a lot of people working in the field with various species in Chile and around are local. And that that has a tremendous impact on on them, but also 
their families and communities. Because I don't, I don't know how you do these projects without them. Honestly, they play a, and they're the ones who have really understand these territories. They, especially in Iberá, it's very complicated to go around in a boat in the wetlands and. Most of the people who can do that without getting lost in it are, of course, our local people who've been going into these areas forever. So I think a really big part of the impact equally are the people coming in from local communities and working on these teams and the impact that then also that has outwardly into those communities. Yeah, I mean, there's no singular approach these environmental solutions, rewilding, it takes so many different stakeholders and different players in this to find a viable solution to move forward. And I really admire the way that you're, both of you are doing this. I mean, and, you know, the whole rewilding Argentina is doing this and making sure to incorporate so many of these different players to make sure that this is really something that can be viable in the long term. You mentioned the jaguars in North America. And so I just want to make sure that we touch upon what the parallels are with the predicament of the jaguars in Argentina and the jaguars in the the U.S. southern border. How would you say that your work in Argentina is paving the way for what can be done to save the jaguars in the U.S.? Of course, there are similarities about what is being planned in the U.S. and what is going on in, in Argentina. The main arguments are basically the same. I mean, losing, losing the jaguars would be a loss for, for the country. There are ecologic, ecological arguments too. There are ethic, ethical arguments too, like, uh, missing, losing the, the, the jaguar. I mean, we cannot afford losing a species. It doesn't matter if it is a jaguar or not, but we cannot afford losing species. And some economic arguments are, are being also used when it comes to, okay, what, what do we do once we have the jaguars back in the US? So the arguments are basically the, the same. What I do think is that Argentina or especially, well, and, and rewilding Argentina in particularly uh, can, can help a lot on that idea because one thing that has not been at least publicly told based on the publications that I have read about the project in the US, one thing is um, maybe these few males that are still wandering around Arizona and New Mexico, maybe they can be anchored with captive females, just like we did in Impenetrable National Park. And we can, our team <laughs> can tell American conservationists exactly what they have to do to successfully have these males first anchored to an area and second mating with captive females. And from there, you will have the animals to start reviving this population. And this is important because one of the main challenges that these people or these colleagues are going to face is from where to source individuals to reintroduce in the, in the U.S. So I think that once the decision is made, there are techniques ready to go to make this project successful. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like the project that you're working on will provide a framework, not only for necessarily rewilding jaguars, but potentially rewilding many other large, you know, top predators someday. 
in other parts in the U.S., but in other parts of the world as well. It's an incredible framework for what can be done. Final question. If you really had to boil it down, what would be the one piece of information that you'd like our audience to remember from this interview? I would just say we have to remember that landscape without wildlife is just scenery. And we have a couple hundred years of national parks really being focused on scenery. And, you know, some of, some of the parks have wildlife, but a lot of them are sort of emptied out. And at least in our case, we were never interested in being in the scenery business. We were always interested in really these fully functioning ecosystems, as Sebas always says. And I, I think it's really important that listeners, when you're out someplace, really almost wherever it is, there's beauty, that's for sure. But real and deep beauty comes from knowing that where species had been absent for decades, sometimes a century, that they're coming back. And that is a whole nother experience that is quite set apart from just being in some particular place that is is beautiful I, I would like to answer this question by starting with the idea that some of the criticisms that we or rewilding in general rewilding activities received right and some of these criticisms are directed to rewilding activities because Rewilding aims to restore populations of species and ecosystems. I mean, restore populations of species and restore ecosystems. And because of that, some people would argue that we think we, we think we are gods. We perceive ourselves like gods, but we are not. The, the point is that the, the philosophical and ethical roots of conservation basically point at two um, aspects of human behavior. One is self-criticism. And the other one is responsibility. And honestly, maybe you do, but I don't know any God with those attributes. <laughs> Now, self-criticism is important to recognize that we, that destroying nature is the wrong thing to do. And responsibility, it's important to take action and make sure that if we broke it, we fix it. If we destroy it, we rebuild it. And that if all that happened because we got disconnected from nature, then we help people to reconnect. This is um, wonderful. Thank you both so much. We really, really greatly appreciate the two of you being here. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us, for giving our wild audience insight into your world, into your projects. And be, be thankful that I skipped all the anecdotes about these animals making our lives really, really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, that could be a whole different episode. And itself. we want those. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Find us on social media through the Wild Foundation. And if you're feeling inspired, don't hesitate to share this podcast with those around you. And maybe even give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the support more than you know. And it's that support that allows our work to continue and evolve.